Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where some friends from Philly get together to talk about movies, among other things. Uh, this month, as those of you listening have known, uh, we've been celebrating uh, an anniversary. We are a year old. Woo! One or, years. One years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, especially if you've been listening last week. Yeah, we're uh, we're one years old now. Um, we've had a, we've had a great time discussing movies, and it's brought us to uh, our favorite movies, uh, which we've been reviewing for the the past uh, theme. Connor uh, brought us his favorite movie, Jurassic Park. Uh, Tori brought us The Thing. Christine brought us Blade Runner. Sam just last week brought us Big Fish, um, which we all just talked about. And so this week we're getting to uh, my favorite movie of all time, which uh, I actually have mentioned on the pod before, but not in that conversation. Um, that would be the uh, 2000 Sever. Uh, two, 2000 Sever. Sever. We, we also speak like be... one-year-olds, yeah. obviously. <laughs> the, two, the 2000 Sever. Sever uh, classic. Uh, did it again. 2007. <laughs> Oscar Darling and um, and P.T. Anderson, uh, director of P.T. Anderson's uh, sort of magnum opus, uh, that would be There Will Be Blood. Um, a lot of reasons that I love this movie, and uh, before we dive into that, uh, just a little something to keep in your back pocket and something to consider as we're having this discussion. Um, when I was a kid, uh, for whatever reason, and this is a bit of an explanation for why, what, kind of why it's my favorite movie, uh, I always had some sort of like weird, preoccupying fascination with villains. Uh, and especially the roles that villains play structurally within film and story. Um, I think, uh, you know, I was raised mostly uh, and cut my teeth mostly on Disney films when I was a kid. That was, like, the huge thing in the house. Like, all the, um, not the Disney Channel movies, but, like, the pr- Disney proper collection or whatever. Um, Disney proper. Wow, what are you saying proper. about D- Disney Channel originals? Uh, <laughs> Dave, you just gave we were a Nickelodeon family, so. But as far as movies, yeah, we, we watched all the Disney movies. And I was always way more fascinated with the villains. I always found them to be... More interesting to have uh, a bit more substance in uh, their roles than the heroes that we were presented with. And it's something that's drawn me to characters throughout uh, throughout my life watching film. Um, so that being said, uh, that is kind of why I chose There Will Be Blood. Uh, uh, I prepared a pretty long plot synopsis for those who aren't familiar with the film, but that's not really necessary. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a movie about Daniel Plainview, a character who is a silver prospector who becomes uh, an oil prospector. And Miner, who uh, who comes up through that the world of that industry in um, Northern California at the turn of the 20th century, um, he has an adopted son that he took under his wing because of uh, uh, an accident on a work site, um, as just sort of like a way to spin himself as a family man. Uh, and then when he arrives at a, an oil-rich town uh, with the hopes of uh, buying it out, he butts heads with. Um, kind of an equally duplicitous and uh, cynical character, Eli Sunday, who is uh, a local preacher, an evangelical, old-school evangelical preacher. Um, and the two of them um, sort of butting heads and uh, and the story that develops within those characters over the course of several decades. That That's mostly the film, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. There's a lot yeah, more to cover, okay. which you we will, it. but as a, as a short-run summary, uh, I think that gives us an idea. Um, so... As we've been doing, um, we've been kind of collecting some negative reviews as a way of kind of like checking ourselves and uh, and giving ourselves uh, something to ponder as we discuss these movies. So, uh, as I understand it, you guys have some interesting negative reviews of There Will Be Blood. So, this person, Prairie Miller, says, Daniel Day-Lewis does an oil maniac in this emotionally drenched, gut-slicing and grueling 
bipolar gore, and what is surely the most grotesque screen image ever of a warped male maternal instinct. Now, she loves her hard G's. Wow. I followed this bitch back, and I looked at the article that this came from. I have some points to make. First of all, she opens it up with saying, in the second movie this year with a serial killer. So she was comparing this movie to Sweeney Todd. And I was like, nah, nah, hold on. Hold on. Well, kills too. But, 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 when you look at the definition of a serial killer, it's true. It's not that. So, hey, Prairie Miller, fuck off. Jeez. That's what I just, I like that's our negative accuracy. review of the negative review. <laughs> I just like accuracy. Journalistic standards. So yes. basically, fuck you, Prairie. <laughs> wow. Okay. I found a review from the illustrious Cork B. User review on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, one and a half stars. May 2018. <sighs> I watched this because it was supposed to be a good movie. Lewis is definitely a decent actor. But I didn't sign on to have him grind his teeth for 2.5 hours. <laughs> kind of fair. Yes. Yeah, I mean, he does that. And the constant, quote-unquote, violins to build tension soundtrack all the time was super annoying. There will be blood with short on blood and long on annoying characters and drag. And then just stops there. But it did still live up to the name. There was blood. They didn't say how much. Yeah, That's true. someone there who doesn't some. get there was symbolism. Some. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well. Good old symbolism. Mm. So thank yeah, you, that, Cork B. That complaint with the score, I'm sure we'll return to. Mm. Um, my review comes from Eileen Jones, uh, who wrote for The Exile, whatever that is. Okay. Um, she didn't use full swear words, but I will just use them. Uh, the movie oh, wow. makes absolutely no fucking sense whatsoever. Epic, and it takes almost three hours in which not to make any fucking sense and is very loud and chesty about it. Chesty! <laughs> it's a chesty film. Oh, yeah, man, okay. This is chesty. I was like, ooh, yeah, that really sold it. Yeah, wow. <laughs> God, if only every movie could be so chesty. Nice adjective. Yeah. What? Good stuff. That's great. Robert. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, we have... Robert H. Says, gives a half star. Says lots of great acting, production value, cinematography, and all that. Okay. So that's oh, the movie. Like, <laughs> so the movie's like excellent. Uh, but almost no story and definitely no point. Uh, it's told by an idiot. Full of... <laughs> <laughs> There's also no narration. So what? Okay. That just kills me. He, he oh a, the internal monologue of the main character, which we never heard, is of, of a total idiot. Uh, it's full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Thank wow. you. Thank you, Robbie. It's full of sound, told by an idiot. <laughs> nothing says you're a professional, like pulling from the bard. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm crying over here. Um, <laughs> so good. One thing that I just discovered is that Cork B gave Battleship, the movie, Three out of five stars. <laughs> and there will be blood one and a half stars. Well, we know what Cork B likes in a movie then. Yep. Well, there will be blood. Uh, Battleship is not, mm. let's say. Yep. Uh, well, uh, I suppose uh, contrary to those reviews, uh, the critical reception was actually extremely warm for this movie. It was nominated for several Academy Awards, including Best Achievement in Directing for Paul Thomas Anderson. 
uh, Best Adapted Screenplay by uh, Dylan uh, Tichner. Uh, Best Direction by Jack Fisk and Jim Erickson. Best uh, Achievement in Sound Design by Matthew Wood and Christopher uh, Scarabasio. Um, and Best Picture in 2007, losing to No Country for Old Men. Ooh. What a well, year. I get year. that movie confused with There Will Be Blood all the time. <laughs> also, when my roommate and I were watching There Will Be Blood, we had to rent it, and we accidentally rented No Country for Old Men. <laughs> Did you well, watch No Country for Old Men? No, no. The films oh, were actually it. both filmed outside of Marfa, Texas. I have a, a great note about that, too. So if they looked a lot alike, it's probably because they were set ah. in the exact same You see same Daniel Day-Lewis just accidentally walking by in a scene. Oh, oh, oh. In a, in a little Model T just... <laughs> you are not far off, and we will return to that later. Oh, oh shit. Wow. wow. But the, uh, yeah, it also um, it went on to win uh, Best Actor for Daniel Day-Lewis, which to me was a washout that year, honestly. Um, in the you know, in, in a lot of people criticize the movie from chewing the sheen, uh, chewing the scenery. We're gonna get back to that too. Um, but it also won uh, Best Achievement in Cinematography for uh, Robert Elswit, PTA's longtime cinematographer and partner. Um, it also won the Golden Globe, the BAFTA, and the SAG Awards for Best Actor and Movie of the Year at the AFI Awards. It's since been dubbed in several articles and publication the Best Film of 2007, as well as topping Rolling Stone's Best Film of the 2000s list. Wow. Well, so uh, it's, it's achieved a lot of acclaim. Uh, whether or not it lives up to those standards, I suppose we'll discover as we discuss it. Um, and that being said, uh, how did you guys feel about the film? I mean, I suppose... If I may, uh, I'd like to suggest perhaps that uh, Christine and Tori, you guys go first. You've seen this movie before, and then we'll cover how uh, Sam and Connor felt about it because it was their first viewing. Well, the first time I watched it, I watched it for a film class I was taking in high school. Uh, and I remember, like, I had to watch it on, like, my mom's computer. That was, like, the only way I could watch it. And <laughs> so it was, like, probably not the best way to watch that movie. I really do wish I sure. saw this in theaters. Um and I remember it was like interesting, but especially being in high school, I probably didn't appreciate it as much as I should have. And then the ending happened. And I was like, well, wait a second. I need to watch this movie again because I feel like I missed the buildup to this insane ending. Um, but I liked it a lot and I wrote a paper for it. And then my teacher and I had an interesting conversation in which he was then like, ooh, maybe you could write like some extra credit papers about like, the him as a tragic hero or like comparing this to like I forget what we were talking about it was like another film and I was like oh yeah I'll definitely do that and then I never did it oh, but damn, it would have been very paper. interesting because I because we like had a great conversation about it um because we were talking about like Shakespearean like tragic figures and stuff like that mm -hmm. um so that's something that's always stuck with me um but I've seen it a couple times since, and I thoroughly enjoy this movie, especially now that, like, um, things like a score are really important to me in a film. Yeah. Um, I think about this similarly with The Witch, which have these, like, oh. very, like, crazy piercing noises at times, which kind of builds... I, there, there are a couple ways. Like, I think they're similar, but I think like the scores in those movies like do very similar things like for them too, uh, yeah. with just like the setting and like you know it is kind of these like weird desolate areas with this like booming like crazy score. It's yeah. a movie that yeah for me the score is its own character. It's, yeah, it's, it's definitely amazing. A film that like if you set that to any other music wouldn't have nearly the same tension that it mm -hmm. did, which is uh, to Johnny Greenwood, the guitarist of Radiohead's credit. Oh yeah, um, and we'll be getting back to that uh, as far as the score. But yeah. Uh yeah, so I uh, saw this 
got to see this in theaters, like on a beautiful big screen. Um, went with actually my high school movie club. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And like, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, I loved it when I watched it. And it's been really interesting to, uh, there have been a couple movies we've actually rewatched that I actually watched with my movie. Because movie club, we would like pick movies every week and we would present them so that school could come out and watch them like in the auditorium and stuff like that. So cool. And mm. so I think it's been interesting to rewatch several of those movies that as like a high schooler being like, I'm going to be picking film and this is the stuff <laughs> we're going to be thinking about and all of this stuff. Um, there Will Be Blood was definitely a movie that like had to be beloved by the movie club because it was like, we are going to show great film, you know, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was wonderful rewatching. There's there are parts of this movie that um, I, that I absolutely love. And it's been really interesting also um, bringing this movie to like up for conversation and thinking about mm. things that I am still kind of processing and reworking it and I'm so so eager to hear what people people have to say um so it basically for me it's been I haven't rewatched it in its entirety since high school and then now rewatching it has been a really wonderful kind of like with distance really looking at this movie um that yeah I and and P.T. Anderson I I really love it as director so it's been really interesting mm. watching his other movies and seeing uh kind of him and the themes he chooses for all the other movies. So yeah, eager to hear what you guys, what you guys think. Yeah, yeah. So that brings us to uh, Sam and Connor. You guys are seeing it for the first time. What did you think? Uh, so this is my first P.T. Anderson movie. That's my favorite and, director. Uh, this movie sat on my Netflix queue for what felt like years and years and years, and I just never felt like putting it on. And then one day it disappeared and I forgot about it. And then I'm so happy that Dave chose this because I'm really glad I've seen it now because it's really awesome. I'm still, I saw it last night, so I think I need to, like, watch it again in the next couple weeks. Um, but the sound, the production design, Dan Day-Lewis' performance, uh, my favorite part of the movie was Paul Dano as Eli Sunday. Man, I hate him so much. I know, much. he's so hateable. God. But he just, ha him and Dan Day-Lewis just are so mm. magnetic on screen together. Um, such great casting. Um, yeah, I can't wait to hear other people's thoughts as well. Yes, I really loved it. Yeah. So me notoriously not liking things. <laughs> um, it's been. <laughs> I went up to you the other day and I was like, "How did you like it?" <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like been this big thing where everyone's taking like, "Well, I think you like it forty percent or thirty percent." Like <laughs> I said, a split of seventy thirty. Yeah. And thirty to like yeah, it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and Connor, I think you said, "Yeah, like 40%. Um, guess what? You're all fucking wrong. I love this <laughs> oh, movie. Yay. Um, here's the thing, and I'll say this: if a movie is good, I will like it. <laughs> this movie is good. Okay. Whoa. Ooh. Okay. Um, that's not specifically to Christine. <laughs> Christine's like, I'll just get fucked up. It's fine. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm willing to take it. <laughs> it's not specifically to you, but it is about mm. something to me. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I really liked well. it. I also really like really character driven things and you know going into this I was like okay 
I think I watched like the first 10 minutes of it years ago. And I remember being like, oh my God. So it was like really bracing myself for hell. And I was so <laughs> pleasantly surprised. And the the tension between um, Eli Sunday and Daniel Plainview is just, it just keeps you going the whole time because mm-hmm. you never, I felt unsettled every time Eli was on screen. And then also the music, and I said this because in our Butter With That group chat, Dave was like, can you describe, like, can you summarize the movie in one word? And it took me a long time. Yeah. And then well, I was I like, I couldn't wait. I just had to know. Uh, I was like unsettling because the music almost didn't fit in moments, but mm-hmm. I think like that was like purposeful. And so I really appreciated it actually. Awesome. There you go. There you go. So, Sam doesn't episode, hate end of episode. <laughs> We should like make a little like Sam, like stamp of approval, you know, like <laughs> Oprah's book club, but like with like a Sam sticker on it. <laughs> So I would love for us to uh, to have an opportunity a little uh, in a little bit to talk about our like our favorite scenes, the real standout moments. Um, but before we dive into that, I do. Um, oh boy, it's been a weird month. I've spent uh, a lot of time watching this movie, more time than I normally do, even though it's my favorite, and uh, doing a lot of like pounding the pavement, trying to do legwork and figure out like uh, how this movie was made and some important production notes. So if I may, uh, I'm going to rifle off a bunch of that really fast. Do it. Great. So, I mean, uh, as far as production notes go, um, the cinematography, again, was Academy Award winning. That was uh, Robert Ellswit, um, who has worked with PTA before. Uh, P.T. Anderson um, watched The Treasure of the Sierra Madre every night during the production as a source of inspiration. Whoa. God, he is also, like, a madman. He is a little bit. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Um, and also Doris Kubrick, which ties into the score a bit. But, um, but as far as cinematography goes, I mean, it's it's a spellbinding film it really um another one that stood out for me that year though was the assassination of jesse james which has some really brilliant cinematography and um some really interesting camera work um which actually ties into uh the notes that i have ahead i mean uh the different cameras that were used um this was shot on panaflex platinum and millennium xl cameras using panaflex c-series and e-series lenses on the 35 millimeter film, um, they utilize high-speed anamorphic lenses, which stretch the image onto the film uh, until counter-adjusted to retrofit them, uh, resulting in a wider-than-average aspect ratio for 35 millimeter film without having to crop anything. Um, which is why the film has like so much scope and depth around like the periphery and the edges, mm. um, and why it feels like so like stretched out but still appro- appropriately proportioned. Hmm. Which, you know, again, goes into uh, the, their P, – really PTA and um, Robert Ellsworth's knowledge of the cameras that they were using and the, the techniques that they were utilizing. Um, speaking of us- utilizing different techniques, in uh, some cases the anti-reflective coating of the rounder lenses was removed for a more flat and responsive image. This results in many of the film's non-digital principal photography lens flares throughout the film. So those were Whoa. just genuine in-camera effects that were not digitally added or enhanced. <laughs> Um, additionally, uh, PTA owns that Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm going to do that a lot. Uh, also owns a uh, vintage 1910 uh, Pafe camera, which was utilized to create uh, a naturally blurry vignette along the edges of several notable scenes. So, like a big one with that, um, that you guys may recall is when the oil derrick is finally falling after he's oh. been out there staring at it for so long. There's that kind of orange halo surrounding the film or the peripheral mm-hmm. of the shot, and that's just a natural product of this vintage camera oh that's cool wow which is a really cool uh like acuity and attention to detail um that i think really shines through with this film 
that's really knowing your craft. Like, holy shit. I mean, Especially, like, a camera that's that old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's used it before. He also used it in the beginning oh. uh, of the, the film Magnolia. Um, ah. And, the, the, you know, the guy... Uh, again, he's my favorite director, so it's easy for me to defend him. But, like, you know, say what you will about him, but, like... The the guy knows uh, the guy definitely knows his cameras and uh, definitely knows the the bare bones production uh, production aspects of making a film uh, truly I know, unique. I know it's just a little thing, but so many scenes of like where oil is spurting up and the water and the oil get on the camera lens itself. And yeah, that just really helped grounds and like a fourth wally breaking way of like this sure. is like you are. Like, this is not digital, this is not CG, like, you are there with Daniel Day-Lewis as this thing is erupting. It's so interesting you bring that up, because I said to my roommate, I fucking hate when they do this. (laughs) But, you know, I don't hold it against the movie, but I... Thumbs down. But, yeah, I hate, like, blood splatter on the camera. Hey, at least it wasn't CGI blood. It was was real oil, I bet. (laughs) Maybe, was the oil real? You know what? I I do have a note about that right here. <laughs> oh, you do. In the summer months, we ask, is the oil um, real? In the winter months, we ask, is the snow real? <laughs> that was actually my next note, Is um, as far as set design goes. Uh, according to uh, Paul Thomas Anderson in a, an interview with Entertainment Weekly, the substance used to depict oil throughout the film was, quote, and this is astonishing given, like, some of the more famous lines of the film, uh, was, quote, the stuff they put in chocolate milkshakes at McDonald's. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> nice. So next time you're going to McDonald's, maybe give this movie a watch and uh, reconsider. <laughs> Drink your milkshake. Oh my god, I'm gonna, yes. The I'm fact that scene. I know the context for that quote now, and it is what it is. What? I know. What? Yes. Well, you know what? It actually has roots in American history. That was a quote lifted from a senator during the Teapot Dome scandal describing... <laughs> describing the drainage advantageous draining of oil oh okay. that takes me back to like history I know that's immediately where I went I was like ah wrote that on the note card I had like war flashbacks like I didn't study for this quiz oh my god the teapot fucking like mugwumps and Oh, God. Oh, Dear God, yes. Mr. Tupper, if you're out there, I've forgotten everything. <laughs> mm. Tweet up on Earth that one, Mr. Tupper. So Mr. please, Tupper. Leslie, yeah. Oh, oh my God. Um, a couple a couple of just kind of sparse notes. Uh, oh, you know, before I get to the acting, actually. Um, the score by Johnny Greenwood. That's something we talked about a little bit. This was excluded from uh, the Academy Award nomination for Best Original Score because it makes use of Brahms. Hmm. But such What's a good that? violin concerto it is. <laughs> I'm going to put on my plebe hat. What is that? Yeah, what's that? So it's the big symphony that happens two points in the movie. Mm-hmm. Halfway through when he finishes the huge oil rig. Uh, I think it's at the completion of like the best oil rig. Right? It's when he. It's basically when he denies Eli the uh, the blessing of the well. Oh, is when it shit. kicks That's off. A good when scene. He, okay, so but is the blessing, and it's like ah, we have completed it, and then it comes in, and then the second time, it kills me a lot in the credits, <laughs> and then it's that big thing. Uh, one, uh, could we do a little soundtrack aside, real quick? Or sure. We want, I um, love, 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 love this uh, this sound the score, Johnny Greenwood's score, and something that kind of I was thinking about listening to it is how, like, at the beginning you have this, like, intense hum. Uh It's, like, almost, like, organic or, like, Mm -hmm. insects. And that, like, 
I was seeing the the stages in his process of like figuring out more efficient ways of of dredging the oil and stuff like that and you hear like more melody like actually constructed melodies forming and then like building into like by that moment where he's like reached the the best most efficient way of of drilling and he's got this great oil rig and everything and then that coming into the it was like as he his sort of marks of his progress and like putting all the machinery together you can kind of hear the sounds mm connecting and like their little notes of like organized sounds until there's just like this sophisticated like I don't know melodies going on but I was like I never thought about the really because the music definitely is at the forefront of a lot of the scenes but I never like kind of saw the relationship between his stages of like oil drilling and progress or whatever and like the sounds kind of arranging as he's doing that and I was like damn this like I don't know. Yeah, the score is like mm, 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 so good. It's kind of the grounding, like pacing element of the film. Mm. Like yeah. it definitely draws your attention to when a scene uh, is, is. I mean, it, you know, I normally hate when like film scores telegraph like the emotionality of the scene for you, but with a movie that's like this, like kind of narratively scattered or vague, like it really enhances or uh, brings into question scenes that might appear banal as menacing. Mm. And then that percussion part when the yeah. rig explodes and then stuff's crazy like everything's like, crazy they're like sync up they they go in and out of like syncopation these these rhythmic beats so like it creates this sense of like uh percussive dissonance almost which is like pretty unique also dissonance is just a big part of the score like um that one in the very beginning that sort of like howling sound that just finally becomes one sound and mm. then dissipates again that was 36 string parts Jesus. uh all written to start on the opposite end of the octave c uh and then at different varying speeds coming together to meet at an f sharp which is why it sounds like such a chaotic just like dissonant like a maw of noise until suddenly it achieves this clarity before dissipating again oof i don't know it's crazy it is really interesting, and there was one scene where I remember pausing and going, whoa, this is fucking weird. And I want to say it was when Daniel and Henry are um, putting in, like, the metal stakes in the mm. ground. Dun, 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 it's just, you're dun, like, this doesn't dun, dun, fit, but it does, and what is this? Yeah, to any other song, I don't know how I would process that scene, but it it feels really in sync with the tension of the rest of the film, even though it's basically just, like, as far as the cinematography and everything goes, like a very idyllic shot of like two men riding on horseback through the California wilderness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it really does a lot of legwork in really, uh, really interesting ways. And I think, in addition to using like sound to like make the movie feel unsettling, I think comedy is used very effectively yeah. mm. in this film to make it um, settling. In that scene where they're hammering the stakes in because Daniel wants to build a pipeline instead of paying the. Uh, money to the railroad companies to the ship pipeline. the oil. He wants to build his pipeline. Uh, and so they get to the coast because they're in like Southern California, I guess, what, 100 miles away from the coast? Something like that. Um, and so when he's at Union Oil's like headquarters or whatever, and there's all these old white guys, he's standing on the table, like hammering the stake <laughs> right into the map. And so right there's just the table, yeah. so many just comedic scenes in what I assumed would be, and with the title, like There Will Be Blood, like a very serious, somber. Um, first reformed kind of film. Yeah. Back to another movie that Dave really likes. I, I do really like that one, yeah. 
Any other thoughts on the comedy of it? I mean, so many quotable quotes. <laughs> My favorite line in the movie, which is toward the end of the movie, during the like the big, the, basically the roast of Eli Sunday, um, <laughs> is just the the one line that he has is, is like so broken and is just destroyed. And and Paul Danu delivers it perfectly as this sort of like whimpering, broken thing. Um, but just in discussing like uh, how uh, the Lord sometimes challenges his. You completely failed to alert me to the recent panic in our economy. <laughs> it's an amazing line. Oh, what's the one you said when we were outside your house? The don't be thick in front of oh me. Oh, my God. Yeah. Nate, Nate, if you're listening, this is something a friend of mine, Nate, and I quote all the time when, when someone says something dumb. is just, uh, can I plow through 50 miles of Tehachapi Mountains? Don't be thick in front of me, Al. <laughs> it's just in front of me that like genuinely <laughs> killed me. Or when he's sitting down with the standard oil, is it the standard oil guys? Yeah. yeah. And he's like, I'm going gonna to come into your room when you're asleep and cut your throat or slit your throat. And the guy's like, wait, 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 wait. What? Like, the, this discussion went from zero to... Did you hear what I said? You don't tell me how to raise my family. Just a napkin, right? <laughs> Oof. And the napkin scene, yeah, that seems yeah. hilarious. I mean, it's also like extremely dark Deeply because I mean, you know, his his son is here and he's making no effort after he's been sent away to like you know bridge the gap in his uh, his disability, um, and it's just so primarily focused on competition that he ignores his son and just gives this guy shit for ultimately no reason. And just you look like a fool, don't you, Tilford? <laughs> Which God, he just takes himself so fucking seriously. <laughs> I mean, okay. I thought many a times throughout this movie, what must it be like to know Daniel Day-Lewis when he's doing a movie? Mm -hmm. Particularly this. Is, I know he's like seriously method. He has to be. But it's like, is he intolerable when he's filming a movie? Or is he fine? This, yeah, this ties into exactly what I was going to discuss next, which is the uh, the performances and the acting. I mean, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, as we know, uh, kind of a career method actor, um, mm. going to the lengths that with uh, my left foot when he, uh, he plays a character with cerebral palsy, um, Sid restrained in the wheelchair the entire filming of the, the the movie, and it resulted in like two broken ribs. Um, when he filmed the boxer, he learned how to box. When he was Bill the butcher, he learned how to butcher things in different cuts of knives and different cuts of meat. Um, when he was uh, doing uh, the Crucible, much to uh, Winona Ryder's chagrin, he didn't bathe during the entire film. Ew. Oh, yum, 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 yum. God sake. Man. And like, Jesus. here's the thing. Oh, no. When it comes to method acting, I am not sold. I mean, it has resulted in some amazing performances. Mm. It's, uh, you know, it's responsible for um, all sorts of things like, you know, Heath Ledger's Joker to a degree. Um, obviously this performance, uh, a lot of others that we've, we've seen throughout the years, but I think that, uh, and it's a terrible counterpoint to bring up actually because of who said it, it's James Woods, no. um, who I think has a point here though. Um, it was on the set of a film called, uh, once upon a time in America with, uh, Robert De Niro, terrible film by the way. Um, but. Uh, Robert De Niro tried to play at method and was like really absorbed in that process. And James Woods in a, a, an interview after the fact said something to the effect of like, yeah, he really tied himself up in that process. And at the end of the day, we're actors. You show up and you play a part. <laughs> and like, I think there is something to be said about like steeping oneself in 
uh, a character as like a backdrop and like an emotional framework while mm. working on a film. But like to the degree that Dan Day Lewis has done it, like when he was working on Lincoln, Steven Spielberg would have to walk up to him and say, "Mr. President, we're ready for your Jesus shot." Jesus Christ. When you make your performance Fuck. and the, your tenacity to it other people's problems on set, I think it's stupid. Yes, I think I was kind of wrestling with that watching the documentary of uh, Man on the Moon uh, oh, with Jim Carrey man, and like, yeah. oh, he was he was really trying to inhabit the character, and it's like, all right, well, at what point does preparing for a role veer into actor entitlement on set yes. and and create a sense of like of a power dynamic and feeling of total self-worth and disregard for other people for mm. the sake of art but also just like being a total asshole well, yeah. there's something to be said for people that can turn it on and off like mm-hmm. i think that's right. like pro- like that's like you know when you can like take your like you're on set you're you're the camera's rolling and you're in that role and then you can turn it off and just be yourself the next moment like that's also like like pretty impressive yeah. and, that's and interesting yeah, yeah that's, that's acting that's, that's what job. you do yeah. yeah I mean I've never been an actor but like and I'm sure it's very hard to yeah. inhabit a character but I, I yeah it's just sort of like we just, just watched we just me. watched Psycho 2 recently which was actually really great uh, but yeah, the fact good. that Anthony Perkins years later could come into that role and do Norman so well yeah. and like it all like the everything about it it felt like I was watching Norman Bates I was like that shit is impressive as fuck to not miss <laughs> like, a beat when returning to it yeah yeah like that stuff is so cool to me and I mean you know if if that's the thing that like works for them fine sure but like to use it as a crutch to like make other people like on set like uncomfortable or like not interact with them in great ways i'm like yeah i don't know if it's worth it yeah Yeah. reminds me of like christian bale too and just like all the nonsense of like yelling at lighting people and Mm. like just yeah that too yeah that's not like on a separate yeah i will say though in this movie, Daniel Day-Lewis, you could get it. I was like, yo, 50 years old and you look this good? Like, <laughs> It's the mustache. It Honestly, it was the mustache. I was, like, really taken by the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, like, he's a, I mean, he's just, like, I mean, he's not a good or a nice character in that movie. Oh, but, he like, mind it. I love watching him. Like, and, like, I, and for me, I don't know if it's, like, just my, I mean, you know, the movie's, like, you know, uh, a capitalist versus like a a religious leader and like i am very like i am terrified of like any religion (laughs) because i don't like the idea of like people forcing like their shit on me and like it watching that i'm like you know what like you're still way better than this other person like eli sucks like the whole time i'm watching that movie i'm like ew get away from me like get out of here i hate i hate everything about you that is (laughs) that is our turn to at the end it's like uh yeah it's it's watching two villains fight yeah which is great and also paul dano like truly like again hate that character really holding his own against daniel day lewis is impressive as fuck because he was still pretty young at that point yeah and i've got some notes on him as well i mean he was uh he played two roles in the film but he's originally only cast as paul the character that we see in the beginning Mm. oh shit Um, he was given both parts his way in well he was given both parts when um the actor uh kel o'neill um was fired from the production playing um eli sunday huh now, the lore goes that Daniel Day-Lewis's on-set persona in his method acting uh, oeuvre on set was, like, too in process, was too intense for this actor and that they were literally scared off set. This is the lore. Now, the actual truth, and this is confirmed by uh, Kel O'Neill himself, um, 
Uh, who wants to save his reputation? Well, he has not really acted since. Um, he, uh, Daniel he, T. Lewis scared me from, from acting. I mean, it probably happened. It was, that was refuted by Paul Thomas Anderson, Daniel Day Lewis, and O'Neill himself, who in later interviews explained that he was professionally unprepared and recognized his own limitations. Mm, that's interesting. So it wasn't so much that Daniel Day Lewis was this kind of like maniac on set that like scared someone away. And. You know, there's proof in the pudding, too, in the sense that uh, we move on then to uh, Dylan Fraser, who plays H.W., the uh, the child in the film. Mm. <clears throat> um, it's his first and only uh, major motion picture role, and he was selected from a group of students who might be suited to the role. And when his mother, in agreeing to uh, his participation in the film, um, decided she should get some, like, scope or understanding of, like, who he was going to be working with, so she rented... A Daniel Day-Lewis film for reference, which happened to be Gangs of New York. No, 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 oh, Jesus. At that point, uh, she was aghast and nearly rescinded her approval, and it took someone on the production mailing her a copy of Daniel Day-Lewis's Age of Innocence in order to bring her back on board. <laughs> Just watch uh, a nice period piece. And also, they had to send her a different Daniel Day-Lewis movie. <laughs> Just like, this one <laughs> but there's a nice like a nicer little interesting note uh that i found in like interviews where um in, with regards to dylan frazier this kid who had, had never worked with another actor before and was working with you know a, a like a sort of like method centric actor playing a despicable character uh dando de lewis's plain view um at the at the very onset of the production even when he was still method acting and embodying the role on set with other people made it a point to approach dylan frazier and say like look um uh, my name's Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, we're going to be working on this film together. It's going to be great. Um, but I'm going to have to be very close to you. I'm going to have to be yelling some of the time. And I'm going to have to be very mean. But you should know the whole time that I'm doing that, that I, Daniel Day-Lewis, really like you. Aww. Aww. Daniel Day-Lewis. so cute. Oh, the cutest oh, boy. kid. boy. <laughs> oh, my God. Mm. There's so, so much. And he does such an amazing performance. Mm-hmm. Um, like even before the turning point of the exploding rig and he loses his hearing, he doesn't really have that many lines, but you just see in his face and in his eyes and just, he's just like watching Daniel. He's his partner. And like he's yeah. his partner. Really? Yeah. And they just, and they like, yeah, his like, oh, his little business partner, junior. <laughs> and there are tender moments, even when Daniel is being like a shit yeah. where you can see that this kid's given it a shot as, mm. as his, as the character. There was one moment that came up with Daniel Plainview and then Mary Sunday. Yes. Oh, my God. You're about to mention, I think, my favorite scene. Go ahead. Oh, well, I mean, there are good parts to it. So I guess it's like it's some um, celebration picnic. Kinda. It's uh, it's after they've uh, after he's robbed uh, Eli of blessing the well and right. celebrates it as him bringing in the well and celebrating Mary in her pl- in his place mm-hmm. out of spite. Um, but yeah, there's a celebration after the fact. And after that, he like pulls her aside and they have like a moment. I was like, I am deeply uncomfortable. And he's like talking about the dad and the dad is like sitting at the scene. Oh, when he calls the dad out for like abuse. abuse or, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's like you don't because uh, H.W. is like he abuses Mary. Like when she doesn't pray, he beats her. It happened like a few scenes earlier. And Daniel abs- uh, absorbs in that scene that information without remark. Mm hmm. Which is why, later when it comes up, and this is why it makes it one of my favorite scenes in the movie, is he, he pulls her aside, and we just see on in the framing of the shot, it's just Daniel Plainview and Mary, and he pulls her aside, and he's just, like, um, saying these, you know, these weird, pretty creepy things, but, like, you know, the effect of, like, 
uh, are you glad that I'm here? Do you like the dress that I bought you? And clearly he's like, she's very uncomfortable and just like, yes. Um, and then he segues into, um, what is it? Your, your, your daddy doesn't beat you anymore, does he? Better not, right? Better not, right? And then goes to send her away and said, go, now go away and don't come back. And she wanders out of the shot and that, because of the blocking, reveals that uh, Abel Sunday, her father, has been sitting there listening the entire time and he kind of silently takes it while Daniel sits in like this serene, like, self-satisfaction. So it is Daniel Plainview doing the right thing like, as far as like, saying like, hey, Mm -hmm. this abuse has to stop. And it's the only morally correct thing that he does in the movie. But he does it for a duplicitous reason. It's yeah. only a power play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is that character in a nutshell. Yeah, it's just like it's a it's egos like fighting it, against yeah. each other. Movie was it's a pissing fascin- contest. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. fascinating. I mean, yeah. e- I mean, even if there are very tender moments with his son, yeah, the, his son is like a performance of family. He, mm. he yeah. does numerous speeches that says, I want to start, I'm an oil man. I'm also a family man. Mm-hmm. I'm, I run a family business. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's having his adorable son there with him as sort of this uh, emblem of sort of business community within family, or he then has his brother or his Supposed half yeah. brother Henry, take the place once yet. he get uh, sends his son off mm-hmm. to school, um, and so there's definitely this exploit exploitive nature of having a like a member of the family around to sort of enhance his image. Oh, the m- most biting line is when he tells the son at the end, who's basically uh. a grown up, and is like, "I'm gonna be leaving you. I'm I've." Uh, I'm going to Mexico with my wife. We love each other. We're in a committed relationship and I'm starting my own business. And then he, Daniel tells his son, you are killing my image of you as as my my son. son. And you're like, shit. I was going to talk about (laughs) that as my favorite scene. I like like, that scene a lot. So I mean, let's, I I think we're at a point. Let's just, let's talk about some of our favorite scenes. No, that's fine. I, I mean, we Last week, we talked about a very different uh, father-son dynamic. <laughs> um, and I do love, like, dad stuff in movies. I don't love dad stuff in this movie. Um, but, like, I, I don't know, like, the the way that, like, the... Whoever the actor is that plays, like, the older version of the son yes. is, like, fantastic in that scene, too. That he's, actor like, is deaf, also. Yeah. Oh, that's... Oh, wow. Okay, that's yeah. so interesting. Um, yeah, like... When they're, like, standing there and talking, and he's, like, very, like, tender and, like, calm in the way he's, like, talking to, like, Daniel Plainview, who's, like, clearly at that point, like, I don't know how old he's supposed to be towards the end of the movie, but but you've seen him over all these years. and He's shooting at piles of trash in his mansion. He's he's alone in his mansion. He, you know. Like Howard Hughes, Grey Garden. Yeah, it's like the American dream. He made all the money. He did all the things. And, like, this is where he is. And he's clearly very happy. And, like, when (laughs) he he tells his son, like, you know, you're not actually my son. And he, his response to him is something like, I'm so glad I don't, I don't have, like, a piece of you like in me or something mm-hmm. I was like fuck like that is such like a an interesting intense moment and then like just like leaves yeah. and sends him off and even though he knows his son son is deaf is just or his quote unquote son is deaf yeah. just screaming bastard in a basket yep mm-hmm. over and over again excuse me I moved the mic I know what I'm doing um, I, I, I prepared a lot of impressions um, <laughs> yes. 
But um, yeah, that seems really wild. And like, I think mm, I should save this for uh, just a little bit ahead. But yeah, I think it's actually he's. I, I think at the end he's he's not happy in that mansion. Yeah. Um, but for a very important and unique reason. But at any rate, mm-hmm. um, any other really like favorite standout scenes or sequences? Anything that really resonated with us? <laughs> I really liked every moment of violence, which is like so opposite of what I usually like. But um, first of all, Henry is played by Benny from Mm -hmm. The Mummy. That's Daniel's, the man claiming to be Daniel's uh, brother, Henry. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think like that whole deception is really interesting. But the scene where Daniel figures it out, where like they had gone to the beach and he was like, purposefully mentioning things. And you can see that yeah. look on his face in that one shot as he realizes it. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it's like it's starting at the beach and then it goes to later that night and he just puts a gun to his head and he and, and basically they have like a little bit of back and forth and he's just like, oh fuck it. And he just kills him. Like, yeah, that's one well, way to handle it. And get it done. And that's like the person who he like sends his son like away. Away for. Yeah. As his partner. Yeah. The son who clearly like Knew, knew what was up. And, like, the son, like, <laughs> the reason he set, uh, there's a scene where he tries to set fire to the cabin they're in, specifically leading it toward Henry. Yeah. Is because he's looked through Henry's book, and though I don't think H.W. can read, he's getting a sense that this isn't the man he says he is. Yeah. In a way that his father is immediately trusting him, and he can't communicate with his father mm-hmm. because he's recently been deafened, and his father has made no effort to bridge mm. that gap. Yeah. So the way that he enacts that and try to tries to point it out to his father is to like say like hey this guy's got to go he tries to set him on fire and daniel's response is to send him away i know it's interesting when daniel falls for this notion of him having an unknown brother because through most of the movie i mean he sort of self-professes that he hates people and i hate most people see these this sort of back and forth between his desire for isolation and his look at community as sort of this burden or this drag, but something he has to play into. Mm. So it's like he has to have Mm. family members to present this family business. He has to cater to this community that's coming to get jobs. And it's like, he's like, oh shit, I have to make a deal with the church because I need people to work my oil rig. And so it's like- Like people are just tools for- Advancement, this necessary evil. And so when you see him, confront this person that's like hey i'm your long lost brother i share the same town and the same father Mm. and like we have so much in common it's like wow okay maybe he maybe daniel is seeking some sort of other connection or something like what like what is going on here Mm. and then you start to see him like oh the the peach what what is the 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 peach tree the peach Mm -hmm. who wait yeah, what yeah. was the name of the farm next to the hill next house? Next to the hill house, right. And then they're just listening to him talk about memories of the peach tree dance or whatever. And you're like, where is this coming from? I think that he, like, genuinely loved H.W. And yeah. And also, he, like, he was growing to love Henry. But just, he's so fucked up that it was, like, never going yeah. to and sustain. I, I think the big thing, and this is something I realized when I watched it, like, in preparation for this, one of, one of the, like, five times I did, um, <laughs> is this tough month, um, is that, the, the, I mean, like, when he kills Henry, it's like, it, it, it's not so much about, it's not really about that betrayal. Like, that's subconsciously Daniel recognizing that he's done the same thing. He has 
masqueraded this facade, mm. this fraud of a family and a son and being his father mm. throughout his whole life. And when he sees someone taking advantage of him in that way, it motivates him literally to kill them. I mean, people can't, like, he doesn't want to be one-upped. Like, he, he right. has to... He wants no one else to succeed. I mean, the, the moments of, like, glee for him and the moments are when he's, like, fucking, like, one-upping Eli and stuff. Like, well, that's... I, I'm about to come to that. Yeah. yeah. I also think it's, like, him, like, recognizing that he fell for a ruse. And I think mm-hmm. him sure. being yeah. the, the idiot in a moment is, like, it's all, what he yeah. would like like least in an entire situation he yeah. always has a plan right. he always is extremely and looks calculated down on everyone around him and a recognition that shit i fell for this yeah. i think it's probably like a self-betrayal in a way yeah especially when he's so and it's largely why he has so much loathing for eli is that he's obviously as uh, as much a fraud as daniel is but he's not willing to fall for that he still sees him as a competitor and a foe but mm. he brings in henry this imposter as like a, a family partner and when that betrayal comes it's too much mm-hmm. i think that leads into one of my favorite scenes which is after he kills henry um the guy who basically owns like a lot of land that they want to build the pipe mm. through hasn't bandy. sold bandy hasn't sold bandy. to him yet bandy comes to him i guess they were camping near his property and says hey i heard you want to talk to me you know you want to build this pipe there's just one thing you have to do i don't want your money but i want you to be baptized in the Church of the Third Revelation, which is Eli Sunday's <laughs> church. And so they bring him in, and I was texting Dave, and I was like, is he going to get midsummered? Like, <laughs> oh, shit! <laughs> like, worse. And so they bring him into the church, and it's such a great, tense scene. And there's not... What I loved about this movie is there's not a lot of cuts. Like, it's, yeah. scenes are allowed to play oh, out yeah. in the breathe. And so there's probably only a handful of cuts in the entire scene where... Um, they're going to baptize Daniel Plainview and Eli's just like a shit-eating grin, just like mm-hmm. say that you abandon your child louder so God can hear you. So people yep. back in here. so marred. Holy shit. Sorry. Well, he doesn't fall for it, though, is the thing. I don't know. Oh, um, okay. Sorry, sorry, so sorry. it's just like he's put into this very intense scene where he just like has to just say literally whatever to just be able to build this pipe to realize his financial dreams. It's like but an Eli Ed Wood when they all get the baptized to get money for the movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Eli makes him yell, I've abandoned my son. Over and over, over again. Over and over. So you're arguing he doesn't he doesn't believe that? No, I mean, <laughs> I believe that that, that, hits a, that strikes a chord. Yeah. And, like, is devastating. But I think he thinks that's more of an insult than it is, like, his sin. Yeah. Mm. I mean, oh, it's okay. like, like contextualizing within, like a, re- like, a religious framework. Yeah, like, it's got nothing yeah, to do yeah. with, like, him having sinned yeah. or anything. Or even him regretting that, necessarily. Yeah. It's Eli pushing his face in the dirt in the way that he literally did to him several scenes before. Yeah. And later, when it's just the whole, yeah. like, false prophet thing, too. Which is, like, yeah, a perfect yeah. counterpoint to that scene. It's, yeah, for sure. I really like that scene a lot, too. I mean, like, not just because it's, like, the end of the movie and it's, like, the like the pivotal lines and everything, but just the fact that he goes from zero to a hundred, like, immediately. Uh. He's, like, literally sleeping on the uh, bowling lanes. He just eats that steak. What does he then- eat? Is it steak? Or? It's just like a weird kind it's of like, steak. Yeah. Like whatever thin it is, meat sticks. He's just completely like fueled by that rage, mm. uh-huh. <laughs> and then all he just like works himself up into that. I was like, that's impressive. It's amazing. I some time. Yeah. It's it's the character. I mean, the thing is, and this is what I meant to return to as far as like um you know him being alone in the house and being unhappy. Um, I think, and this this uh, ties into the last little bit. The way that this film engages in a lot of cinematic subversion um 
as far as like the the American epic, a lot of American epic stories that we're treated to, um, you know, like uh, these men that have carved their way mm. uh, through power uh, to a certain status that um, that then robs them of their humanity and they regret it. That does not happen here. Mm, true. Um, like we have Charles Foster Kane, who um, who becomes this this uh, total like uh, powerful figure, but in the end realizes that he's only been doing that to replace a lost innocence or, or memory of his childhood. Uh, we have Michael Corleone, who um, mm. in The Godfather, uh, it, which for me ends at Godfather Two because Godfather Three is trash. Agreed. Um, yes. Also agree. <laughs> but at the end of that movie, you know, he's recalling um, how one of his decisions in a flashback drove his family away from him once before, and now revisiting alone at his estate how he's driven his family away from him through his actions. And there's remorse there. There's a true sense of, like, um, characters, the these men who have been corrupted by their very capitalistic and very American drive, mm. um, recognizing that that hasn't brought them the joy that they have wanted in life. The opposite is true yeah, here. True. Where Daniel Day-Lewis has achieved that dream. He has become the millionaire. He's, uh, he's receded to his estate because he wants to get, as he says, he wants to make enough money that he can get away from everyone. But what he underestimates in is that it's not about the money for him. It's about competition, which is why when his son mm. H.W. shows up, it's important to him and for him to announce him as a competitor and cut him down, which is why when Eli shows up, he's in a stupor of misery in his seclusion with no no worlds to conquer. But when his old foe shows up, it's one more opportunity to get something over on somebody, yeah. which is what drives this character and makes him <clears throat> unlike Michael Corleone or unlike uh, Charles Foster Kane in the American epic, not a lamentable character, but an actual villain. Yeah. Which I think is so awesome and so rare in film. Well, um, and through the movie, he doesn't even try to, like, obtain, like, those things that these other men are trying to obtain mm-hmm. to, like, make them happy. Even, I don't think he's trying to ever make himself really happy in this movie. No. I don't know what that would look like for there's, Daniel Plainview. Yeah, there's the conversation with the um, the Standard Oil guys yeah. where he, he says, like, they're, they're saying, Daniel, we'll make you a millionaire as you're sitting here. And his response to that is, what would I do with myself? Because yeah. then there's nothing for him to beat. There's no one for him to beat yeah. into submission. There's no one for him to conquer, which yeah. is the monster that is Daniel Plainview. Mm-hmm. But I think within the context of this story, he's not the. Vi- I could see him of as a villain in the context of other similar characters as as you've laid out, or mm-hmm. like other maybe movies that deal with this time period or this sort of narrative arc. But I think within his story. I would say Eli is the villain, like, as the counterpoint, because yeah, I think well. as an audience, the... At least, okay, I, I think that part of me watching this movie is, is watching and kind of rooting for... Daniel Plainview. Now, does that make me a sick fuck? Maybe. I don't know. No, I but, agree. <laughs> like, and so I think the... And I guess that's that would be a question, like, I would open up this notion of, like, a villain within the context of the, this movie. I see more that but can you root Eli's for a villain? Like, uh, certainly, that's certainly. the other thing, too. It's like, I mean, he's a bad guy. Like, he's villainous. Like, but you're rooting for him. Like, yeah, you can root for but a villain. I see like, him as the most, like, calculating and, like, 
He's better at being a villain than Eli, which is he's why he smarter. Wins. But he's yeah. also extremely smart and can like see through lots of bullshit. Yeah. Like that that's around him. And so I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, you're not really that much of but yeah, I mean he's like uh-huh. a Okay. Ba- yeah, yeah. Dastardly. I, I have the same thought. Like when you said, "Oh, an unlikable character," I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna go in for this." I'm like, "I, I liked him through the well, whole thing." I think there are. This film gives him a lot of, a lot of moments, where he has the opportunity to make the right choice, and every time he consciously doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's true. But it's within who's like like moral standards so he chooses so the oil rig explodes Mm -hmm. his son goes flying the viewer the audience can already tell that there's something wrong that there's changed with the son that he's either going to be hurt in some way or it turns out that he's lost his hearing and first daniel runs to the son takes him and carries him to this picnic or this bench nearby yeah, like, yeah, and then you're like ooh is he gonna stay with the song I don't know and he like he clearly has a moment is like are you okay you're gonna be okay you're gonna be okay mm-hmm. and then you're like ooh but this competing uh, this thing's competing for his attention is like Especially what is gonna be happening to his oil rig flame, yeah, yeah and he goes to the oil rig and it's, so it's like maybe ethically and morally maybe he should have stayed with his son but according to his guiding principles his his rig is like his life and his passion, and he chooses to do that. So it's kind of like, I don't know, it, like, I think it also subverts, like, notions of, like, what drives someone, what someone cares, ex- like, a lot, ex- like, extremely. Yeah. It's well, extremely I mean, devoted that, to. That's I, an, oh, go ahead. Yeah, uh, well, I was going to say, too, like, another thing for this particular character, I think the reason I like Daniel Plainview and, like, watching him and, like, him, like, getting a one-up is because I hate Eli so That's much. That's the thing. It positions If there was a person yeah. that was beside him that wasn't as hated, I don't know how that would look to me. I think a big part of it is, like, fuck Eli. I want to <laughs> see this dude, like, like at, like, suffering. begging. I want to see him suffering. I want to see him saying he's a false prophet. Like, I want all I, that shit to happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm in total, like, every time I watch it, there's the biggest smile on my face yeah. during the last five minutes yes, of that movie for sure. just pure like some sinister thing in me just like celebrates You're like, a yes, villain be- a you. better villain beating a lesser villain <laughs> yes maybe it's but, that it's like the the different yeah. levels of villain within the but same too, as story it, as it regards the oil derrick thing with um you know when his son is deaf and you know he makes a decision to go back to to see to the fire at the oil derrick which makes sense because that's his business and the yeah. lives of other people are at stake the difference, though, between Daniel Daniel Plainview and a more moralistic character is that he'd go back. Like, it takes his partner saying to him, is HW okay? And he says, no, he isn't. Mm-hmm. Then his partner runs back, and he stares at it until morning. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just like, it's, I don't know. I just feel like every, yeah. at every turn, he's just such a monster. And, like, he's, he's a human. But he is a monstrous and despicable character, which is, <clears throat> again, to kind of round things out, um, what drew me to the film, um, as I mentioned at the top of this show, I, I was always I always have a preoccupation with villains. Within three-act structure, I find them to be really important because three-act structure dictates that it's the hero's journey. We're normally treated to a status quo where they exist. An antagonizing force arrives. 
that hero learns something about themselves, defeats the antagonizing evil, and returns to the status quo or something like it while having learned about themselves. This movie is the opposite. This mm. movie is a character who's pretty, pretty unlikable, is softened in the middle, and then becomes maniacally steeped in their own villainy. Um, but I think he does learn something about himself. I think the moment with the brother is a recognition that he can fall for... But that, but does that change his behavior at all? I like in the way that I it does conventionally with three act structure? I don't know. I don't know. I sort of saw a turning point as far as, uh, or does that just force him to be more of who he was? Maybe in the it's beginning? a reinforcing <laughs> yeah. moment. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know to build those walls back up that he <laughs> spent his entire life constructing. Yeah, but like yeah, yeah, also yeah. like I think that's an interesting point too because like um, one issue I have with like some of the Marvel movies is that I don't think there are, are that many great villains, uh, and I love a good villain. Um, that's why I like the the uh, Spider-Man Homecoming because I thought that um, Jake uh, Gyllenhaal. Michael oh, Keaton. Michael Keaton, that's the first Michael one, Michael right. Keaton was a fucking fantastic villain in that. Um, but, like, it's it's hard when you're like, okay, like, I like the protagonists and stuff, but, like, I want to see, I don't know, I want to see something, like, more on the other side of that, too. I think that's really important, which, like, is why, like, fucking, like, the Joker is so great and, like, the sure. Dark Knight. And, yeah, like all, like, all of those, like, characters are, like, really, like, what... What make those movies like work even more and make them better? Because we know how heroes work. They're a product of the environment we're set in in the beginning of the film within three-act structure. Mm. Villains are the wild card. Yeah. Uh, so they're kind of the ones to watch. They're the ones that challenge the status quo. They're the ones that reshape the world in which they live. And I think that that, to me, as a kid and to this day, is infinitely more fascinating than the story of a hero. Which is why I think this is my favorite film of all time. It's a villain versus a villain, and a villain wins. Um... So, I mean, that being said, I, I guess that's that's pretty much rounds out what I have to say about it outside of, like, a quick a quick recap of the first time I saw it, if you guys will indulge me. So, the first time I saw this movie was at the Ritz in, uh, in Philly. Uh, it was in the big room at the, uh, the one on 2nd Street. So, it was a huge screen with great sound. And um, just watched it all unfold with, like, very little knowledge of what it was going to be. I didn't read anything about it. I just saw the trailer, and it gave me the, as I mentioned a few episodes back the trailer tingle I just knew it was going to be for me <laughs> and it was and um, by the time that it was over like everyone everybody left the theater and I was just sitting there staring at these credits and it was just like aghast just like completely blown away and thought to myself like I started doing the math and crunching the numbers it's like okay this year 2007 it's going to be like another two months before I can find a pretty shitty pirated version of this to get online mm -hmm. and watch again I don't think I can wait so I went back to the lobby and for the second time within three hours that day said, one for there will be blood, please. <laughs> and saw it again right after. Damn. Um, I love a movie that makes you want to watch it as soon as it's over. Like, I don't, I fully don't expect that I'll have another experience like that in theaters ever again. Um, which is why this movie just sort of, um, I mean, among everything else we've discussed, um, just makes it kind of like the untouchable standard for me as far as, uh, as far as my favorite films go. And it was really, really awesome to talk to you guys about. And it was really great to share uh, perspectives about our favorite movies this past month. I think these have been some of our best episodes and some of the most fun I've had doing this podcast. And I look forward to moving on. But this has been a really great month. And I'm, I'm really glad we were all able to be so honest and, uh, and uh, flexible with our favorite films. And I thank you guys so much for, for watching it. It's it's, I'm always excited to talk about this movie with people. So I have one quick question. Where did oh, yeah. the title come from? There will be blood. Uh, I mean, it was, um, I don't know. It's just uh, 
basically a fabrication. It was just what they came up with because it was based on Upton Sinclair's oil, by the right. way. Right. Which um, it, it's only true to like two or three characters within the first hundred and fifty pages. I just in my mind have like. P.T. Anderson with this script and this concept, like coming and being like, okay, I've got this great idea for a movie. It's gonna be based on Upton Sinclair's oil. And these like folks are like listening, the studio like, okay, 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 okay. And then one person raises their hand in a conference room is like, all right, is there gonna be blood? Like, come on, give us some like conflict, give us something goes, interesting. Like, oh, shit. Um, He's like, maybe there so I didn't know if there was there like might be blood was, there was like title. a reassurance to audience like this isn't going to be a super slow burn like I promise there will be some blood but well there will be oil is probably not as good of a title so they <laughs> had to just given. like scrap the oil and add something else the lifeblood of yep. America the blood of the train. exactly yeah, yeah I mean right I really took that blood meaning oil and then also you know blood in the oil from all those people who got like hit in the yo, face yo that drilling <laughs> don't worry folks there will be blood Sure. And well, I mean, speaking of blood, next month we're going to be uh, rolling into uh, rolling into some some more blood. We're going to be talking about some horror films. Uh, it's that time of year again, and we're we got the itch to talk about some scary movies. So we're going to be uh, we're going to be delving into some of that when you guys rejoin us next time. But before we uh, bid you guys adieu, does anyone have anything to plug or anything they'd like to mention? Cinema seventy six. Yeah, <laughs> I write things. It's true. She does. They're great. Thank you. <laughs> Congratulations to Christina and Ian on getting married. This will come out right at their wedding week. So, hey. my friends, yay, congratulations. Hey. I thought you meant, like, Christine here, and I was like, wait, you're getting married and you didn't tell anyone? I was about to stop us dead and be like, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> 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 Hiding behind a notebook right now. Wow. Christina you really took me. I was like, holy shit, what? <laughs> wow. Well, Christina and Ian, <clears throat> congratulations. <clears throat> Of course, you can find us on all our social medias. Butter with that, uh, butter with that one on Twitter. Um, what's the what's the Gmail again? Butter, butter with that, that podcast at gmail.com. Gmail. Com, yeah. oh my God. And uh, just before we go, um, once around the room, everybody, give me your best. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Oh, no. Let's do it. Let's I don't do it. Just do how it. How he said it. I drink your milkshake and I drink it up. <laughs> Oh, I don't want to. <laughs> it's going to be so bad. Someone else go, and I'll do it later. <sighs> he's, like, like leaning up against the fit, like, uh, Eli's face, right? Yeah. He's, like, pushing against his nose. I go. drink your milkshake. I drink it up. That's good. That's good. Okay. You ready? You can do it. Sure. This feels like when Christine made me sing that song. Oh, oh my rock. god. I was like, yeah. Fuck. That was so horrid. Okay. Was so <clears throat> I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. That was good. That was so good. <coughs> oh, God. Wonderful. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Oh. <laughs> wow. 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 Milkshake. Wonderful. <laughs> Well, mine's mine's relatively practiced. <clears throat> I drink your milkshake. <laughs> I drink it up. Mm, the master. Uh, wow. And that, ladies and gentlemen, there the was, master, uh, which was uh, <laughs> the next movie. The next movie. <laughs> we'll cover that at some point. Mm. But as always, folks, uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. There will be butter with that. Ooh. Ooh.
Drainage! <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, I almost forgot. So, uh, tracing back to something that we discussed earlier in the episode. Also, when my roommate and I were watching There Will Be Blood, we had to rent it, and we accidentally rented No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Did you well, watch No Country for Old Men? No, no. The films oh, were actually it. both filmed outside of Marfa, Texas. I have a, a great note about that, too. So if they looked a lot alike, it's probably because they were set ah. in the exact You see Daniel Day-Lewis just accidentally walking by in a scene. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> a little Model T just... <laughs> you are not far off, and we will return to that later. Oh, yeah, so that was something that we uh, we forgot to touch on. So uh, as we discussed, There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men, uh, two films competing for the Best Picture and Best Director category in the 2007 Academy Awards, uh, which were in 2008, um, was that they were both shot in Marfa, Texas. And uh, one thing that, interestingly enough, uh, happened as uh, as part of the sort of unspoken competition between these two films was that uh, while shooting in Marfa, Texas, uh, No Country for Old Men had to grind their uh, days of production and shooting to a halt. Uh, that because There Will Be Blood was filming nearby and the oil derrick sequence, uh, the burning oil derrick uh, in the uh, about halfway mark of There Will Be Blood uh, was a practical effect. So that was actually burning wood there in the background. Uh, that smoke uh produced from that uh that sequence actually made its way into several shots of no country for old men which meant that the cohen's had to stop their production dead because uh the competing picture there will be blood and uh pt anderson's uh production uh was basically obstructing obstructing the scenery within no country for old men that because of the giant plumes of smoke that were peeling off of the uh burning derrick which is a practical effect so, uh, pretty wild crossover there. At any rate, uh, thank you so much for uh, sticking around for this extra little tidbit, and we will rejoin you next week. 